Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. This is the podcast that brings you the greatest innovation change makers in the world of insurance and insure tech. We speak to innovation leaders from carriers and brokers. We speak to insure tech founders and C-suite executives. And we bring you all of the people that add value to that community, whether it be private equity, venture capitalists, or even people like organizational psychologists and thought leaders and futurists. We try really hard to bring you the most innovative people in the world of insurance on a global basis. So with that in mind, we'd love your support. So please like, share, follow or subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Bond. Welcome to the Leadership Insurance Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by FinPro. FinPro is a leading insurtech specialist recruitment business that operates on a global basis. We have delivered assignments across North America, throughout Europe and into Asia. We are super excited to speak to anyone who has some recruitment challenges that is either starting or scaling a business. And we're confident we can help you find the people to help you innovate the world of insurance one new hire at a time please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com for more information. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Sten, who's CEO of Zigo. Sten, good morning. How are you? Hello, I'm good. Excited to be here, Alex. Good, thank you very much. Um, I, I said this uh, before, but um, you know, with some of the, your Zigo's bit of business that we've talked about quite a bit, um, the journey's been kind of very public and very exciting. Um, uh, but I always want to start from a position of ignorance. So um, rather than kind of assume everyone knows who Zigo are, um, it'd be great if you could introduce the Zigo business and, and, and what it is exactly you guys do. Sure. Well, Zigo is an insurance company focused on vehicles. So we insure from individuals all the way through to large enterprise fleets. And we insure from one minute all the way through to one year and whatever works for the customer. And uh, generally, we insure uh, vehicles where vehicles are being used to um, earn money, you know, so uh, and for example, we've got ride-hailing uh, products, food delivery, parcel delivery, electric scooter, rental schemes, and so forth. So wherever a vehicle is being used to earn money, this is our kind of focus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a space that's kind of much more hotly contested now. But, you know, something you've been on the journey for a long time. It was very much kind of the USP at the beginning. Um what's been the evolution like of the business and uh, you know, just to give some context where did you start presumably started as an mga format in in just one sort of very specific area and then, and then it's grown into a much bigger business now yes so we started 2016 and uh, there was a very clear problem whereby food delivery companies weren't able to hire drivers quick enough mm-hmm. when you looked under the hood you realized that the problem was insurance So the pitch to all of these drivers back then was, come and work for me. I'll pay you a job. I can't guarantee your income. And I need to see your insurance certificate, which is like £1,400, $2,000 a year up front, right? So 
we then thought naively, why can't you just do it based on units of work? So when you work, you pay. When you don't, you won't. We told lots of people. Um, they said it's a great idea. We told lots of insurers. They said it's a terrible idea until we found one uh, who was willing to give it a go. So in three and a half months, we went from an idea to launch. We got the insurer onboarded. We got regulated and, and we built the product. And then day one, we had customers and, and been growing since then. So initially, it was very much a, a brokerage structure. Then it evolved into MGA structure. And we quickly realized in order to be able to build a hugely successful business, you also need your own insurance carrier. So we also have an um, insurance carrier. Um, so in generally we approach, we work with other insurance partners as well, but, uh, roughly around, you know, 20, 25% of the risk is on our own balance sheet. So that also helps because we've got skin in the game and, mm -hmm. uh, we've got the infrastructure that you have to have as a insurance company. Uh, so there's very much an alignment of objectives because MJs in insurance often have quite a kind of a not aligned objectives and that's our model and that's how we operate uh, in like five six european uh, sorry uh, markets in uh, in europe main, main market at the moment still is uh, the uk mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how did it impact your relationship with your um, insurer partners when you said right we're going to go and launch our own balance sheet and, and accept our own risk um presumably it could go two directions it could create some friction and it could create you know some sort of shared risk thoughts on it but i'm interested yeah. in how that relationship changed so even before we put an application in the moment we had an idea that we wanted to do it we told our partners mm. so i think it's very important to be upfront about it and and about the objectives and, and fundamentally where it boils down to is when you raise a lot of venture capital money and my use an analogy whereby you're building the nicest house you can but if you do not control the power or internet that comes to the building doesn't matter how nice house you have if you can't use it right if you don't have electricity you can't use it so hence um the the dependency uh is massive and um at the same time having your own carrier requires a lot of regulatory capital so we don't want to be doing necessarily we want to optimize that as well. So we were very upfront. We told about it. We kept them in the loop and we were very clear of the rules as well, what business goes on where. And that's not because one of the main con concerns was on anti-selection. But if you actually program um, automatic kind of a risk a distribution, then it won't be a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, we now work with uh, some large A-rated insurers in multiple countries, and we got a long list of insurers who are very, very keen to work with us. So that model, they understand how it works. We've been very transparent about it, and um, yeah, it's worked well. Yeah, yeah. Transparency is that I ask a lot about partnerships because I think you know, particularly the insure tech ecosystem is built on partnerships, um, and, mm. and insurance is unusual. I think for many industries is that when you you know, I've worked in insurance for a long time, but I think when I first joined the industry, you're surprised how often you interact with, uh, you know, what would outward, outwise looking in would be competitors. Um, but there's lots of, you know, insurance relationships um, across, whether it's reinsurance into insurance, whether it's some syndicated markets, um, there's so many opportunities to, to partner. Um, and, and, and transparency and honesty and authenticity is, is, is the kind of themes of language that come up all the time. 
um, mm. because it's that that's so core to the industry. Uh, I, I suppose it's probably core to any successful relationship. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about the just you know, Zigos as a company gets talked around in numbers quite a lot. And, you know, Unicorn is a, obviously an exciting title, but one is get an understanding of you know, uh, five different markets. What's the size and scale of the business now in terms of kind of people numbers and, and, and the markets you're in and, and just to give that real context to, to the audience here? Yes. Um, there's only that much I can share about the numbers. I hope you appreciate. But um, we are in um, six markets. Uh, so UK, Ireland, France, Spain, Netherlands, um, and then we, um, sorry, there's actually five, sorry. And then we do another three markets where we don't have necessarily an office presence, but we are doing business. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's our presence uh, at the moment. We are around uh, 600 people. So we've grown the team a lot uh, recently. And um, we, um, we build a lot of technology. Like uh, we are, a, I always say that we are a tech company that does insurance. So mm -hmm. um very much solving problems through technology, creating an underwriting and advantage through technology. So, um, yeah, and, um, you know, we are growing double digits year on year. We, um, what else? Um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you manage culture? Because, so, you know, six years ago, you start this thing and three and a half months in, you, you're sort of up and running, which is incredible. Um, but your challenge is, I don't know where is it not holding on to culture or like how how do you how do you keep that kind of startup feel when you start to become a, a you know you're a, you're a pretty pretty big business now so how do you keep that kind of startup mentality going? Um, um, I mean, I would say so. I've been from day one with the business, and I would say that I've seen mm, seven eight different zigos and mm -hmm. uh, zigos. Right. So the business constantly evolves. So if you if you're a team of 30 and you want to keep the same way of operating and same culture, you're not going to be successful when you're 200. Mm -hmm. So but what is a common nominator across the board is the values that li people live by. Mm -hmm. And this is something that uh, is incredibly important to me. And um, so we have we have values and one of the values is Zigo before ego. And this is probably one of the most resonating one. And like we first interview people and we have a specific values uh, stage in an interview process where you will be grilled at how well you're living up to Zigo values. And, um, and these people are interviewing like from completely different parts of the business have nothing to do with the job or a team they're going into. And uh, there's a lot of kind of a passes there. So um that's one of the way of doing it. Like you have, to, if you have like, I have a kind of allergic reaction to egos who are there to drive their own agenda. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, no, there's no place whatsoever for the, these individuals at Ziga. And then um, other values like take the wheel. You need to have the tribe take the initiative and, and we validate in those. So whether you're 30, 200, 600 or 5,000, you need to be hiring based on those and holding those to high regard we do performance reviews based on that etc give uh, kudos um, on values and, and so forth so that is one way of doing it otherwise i don't think you should try and hold on to like too much of the organizational size the way you were doing things at 30 will break when you're 60 will break when you're 150 that's mm -hmm. normal 
and you're constantly having have to like rebuild your processes, rebuild your ways of working. And that's okay. That only shows progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting what you said there. I, I think so many companies I talk to sort of try and hold on to those. Oh, we have to hold on to these, um, you know, underpinning elements uh, from 30 and exactly it breaks. But I think keeping hold of that culture and um, making that work is, 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 is so important. But what, what was important to me there, and I, th- I think one of the things that I think people don't do as well, and this is, you know, from being a headhunter, this is something I see, is you have the values and, and then you use them to screen people on the way in, but they're not kind of checked against as we go. And I think re- reviewing against that is so important because, you know, what tends to happen is people get reviewed against that, oh, they're a high performer, but they're not sticking to the cultural values. And, and nothing really happens. And I think that's yes. a really toxic environment that gets created. So it's so yeah, it, people, um, people do not manage necessarily performance. So like, you know, I think the trickiest one is like, so called smart assholes, like very good at the job, um, exceptional delivery, but incredibly difficult to work with. And um, I think it's like when let's say on scale one to 10, if you've got nine or 10 performers, it's a no-brainer. If you've got like one to three, it's a no-brainer what you need to do. But if you've got five, six, seven, it's very tricky, right? And I think quite a few people fall in that category. But I think you just have to apply the same approach. It's um, what's best for the business. And that's, that's the one single question I ask constantly in my head is what's best for the business. Mm-hmm. If best for the business is for me not to be the CEO, then that's best for the business. And I will accept that, right? So, and I'd expect this from every single employee, including shareholders. Mm-hmm. And um, hopefully, well, well, that has worked so far well. Hopefully it will work in the future as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but not everyone's got a snappy, uh, a <laughs> snappy Zigo before Ego. Um, I know. Yeah. You, know, you can't <laughs> say that like, you know, Zigo before Axa or Zigo before yeah, no, it's, It doesn't it's, r- rhyme that well, right? I was just like, can I, can I get that into mind? Uh, <laughs> ego doesn't quite work. I'll, I'll work on it. I'll think of it. Yeah. Um, but thank you for that. And it's, it's, that's super helpful. Um, and I just, uh, it's such an interesting business. I want to get to, to that because the reason we reached out and um, coordinated this was we were fascinated to see that you launched your vision of 2040, um, which is a great, uh, I'll put a link in the, the show notes if in case anyone haven't, but um Ziga did this uh, piece of work that came out was your vision of what 20 with 40 would look like um and it was much broader than just insurance it was much more about sort of the you know genuinely about mobility and and you know food delivery and and and, and all uh, you know the working the sort of environment that we were going to be in in 2040 um so we'll put it in the link some everyone should go and look at it um why do you think it's important for insurance companies to have a kind of future view that is 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 broad enough to to encapsulate you know the wider world i think people say what's our business going to look like 2040 and what's the insurance environment 2040 but you guys went went further than that and just said what do we think the world's going to look like in 2040 why was that important to do sure um I'm pleased you like that because we put a good amount of work into really thinking through the details. When you when you actually take a moment, uh, we have a like a Google view style where you can move around, zoom in and out uh, feature on there. And uh, we really wanted to make it real and also what is feasible. 
So, um, and there's a lot of attention to detail in this whole world. And it is literally outside the Lloyds of London building. And you can kind of see and imagine yourself how the world works. Um, so the reason we did it was insurance is quite an intangible um, part of a supply chain or value chain. So, I mean, the, the, I think the closest analogy I would use is uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services. You turn them off, half the websites disappear off the planet, right? Um, and uh, so they are like the tide riser, essentially. You never see them, never present. You're interacting with like websites, experiences, but they do exist and power all of it. And insurance has, in my opinion, the same role to play. So therefore, how do you then inspire people working in insurance and also understand the impact they are having for the rest of the world? And we wanted to paint this picture, be like, okay, this is how the 2040 could look like based on technologies available, being developed and so forth. And um, we, like Zico, let's say if Zico is hugely successful business, that still is like 1% of contribution bringing that future to life. So mm -hmm. it's a requirement for hundreds of thousands of companies, big and small, at different parts, be it manufacturing, be it like, uh, you know, infrastructure, all of that coming together, making this future a reality. And I think when you visualize things, it becomes a lot more understood. If I tell you autonomous vehicle, probably what's on your mind and my mind are very different autonomous vehicles. By putting it visually drawn up, we both understand. So, and there's a there's an element of like, hey, insurance is actually a very key part of this whole thing. Let's inspire the people in the industry and also let's envisage how the future could look like that we all have a role to play today to enable it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, sorry, my final quick point, the very tangible element is like, take the electric scooters. When these came about, insurance companies quoted them traditional annual uh, car prices just doesn't work right yes. so we were very much like okay let's do it by the minute and uh, when the vehicle is being used and so forth so i think the it's our responsibility to design insurance products for new types of uh, modes of transport because if we do not do that that's holding innovation back yeah no completely understand that yeah um I suppose one of the things that's outside the industry's control to a certain extent, or maybe it isn't, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, because it's something that you would have had experience of, is, is the part regulation has to play. Um, you know, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the part of this vision I was looking at was going, well, the only thing that's going to get in the way there is, is, is regulation issues. Um, I suppose what part can the insurance industry do to help that vision become a reality from a, a sort of regulation standpoint? Yes, um, I think regulation is the final, call it, signature or approval. But in order for this to be easily granted, all the other parts have to make sense and come together. Mm. So if insurance companies are uncomfortable taking on any type of risk that comes from autonomous vehicles, they have not designed the products for them. Regulators are more reluctant to approve it. So if insurance companies are designing products meant for these types of vehicles work with the relevant manufacturers and operators then um, they together can go like hey mr regulator do not worry we've got vehicles 
we got uh, cyber insurance here, we got software insurance, we got hardware insurance, the vehicle has been tested X million miles. Um, and uh, this is how it works, right? That gives the comfort and safety to be like, you know what, let's give it a go. So I, I think we need to be fundamentally, I think the biggest shift is going from insurance industry from a mindset of being reactive to going to proactive. Mm. Because insurance often responds to like issues and always looks historic data. But how do you, I think the key shift here is become proactive be part of those conversations and um, and then take it from there. That is the key part, in my opinion. Mm. I think that will probably, this this next question leans into that quite heavily, I think. It, you know, we've seen, <sighs> autonomous vehicles are a very complex risk, but they're very complex in terms of kind of the engagement. Um, and we've seen the rise of kind of some of the conversation about internal risk solutions, such as like Mercedes announcing its own insurance for autonomous vehicles. Yeah, what does what does this mean for insurance to 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 stay relevant? Because do we risk, you know, what's to stop these autonomous vehicle makers raising a balance sheet, doing the internal insurance? Um, I know we could argue that that they need that knowledge base, but I suppose there's a there's there's a risk there. So sort of building on from the the previous answer you gave, yeah, how do we continue to remain relevant? Um, presumably it's about partnerships um, and, and engaging at an earlier point of the value chain of these kind of innovations outside of insurance? Yeah, there. I think there is a few few lenses. So first of all, it depends what role you're playing. So those large OEMs, they have to develop some of those insurance models um, because in order to get traction, take Tesla, for example, they developed end-to-end -end stack, including batteries and everything else, in order to get more momentum for electric vehicles, charging stations and, and so forth. If they hadn't done that, I think the evolution of electric vehicles would have been significantly slower, mm -hmm. counting on other uh, partners to, to move at pace. Now, well, they are very happy to buy batteries uh, from all other companies. They even like shared their patents, like go everyone else, like produce batteries because they're going to be needing them uh, as much as everyone else. So... I think the, my logic to the OEMs is that uh, they have to do it in order to get going. But take, I don't know, Volkswagen, for example. Imagine if they were to insure every single vehicle themselves. The balance sheet risk is like huge. Mm -hmm. I do not know. Uh, they, they're going to need like 50 reinsurers behind it at least. And at the same time, there's a massive exposure in case, let's say, things happen. Because let's say softwares or hardwares they can break and often if it happens, it rains, right? So it happens in one go. So you really have to think of the largest exposures you have any given time. And I think therefore, um, from insurance point of view, like great example, take an airplane, like there's what, 160 seats, but really any reinsurer is taking six seats. So uh, taking six seats in any like multiple dozens and dozens of planes, that's how they kind of... Uh, pull the risk so yeah. if you're all in with volkswagen for example and volkswagen themselves are all in it's very risky so i think they have to be uh, divvying up from a balance sheet point of view the risk mm -hmm. then the second element is your like delivery of, of the product the customer and technology behind it i think if if there is companies who purely focus on that then there's a, a great opportunity there as well um, so 
I just don't, I think that my view is you have to get going, you have to get traction and then you, um, th then you have to pull it because it just gets into trillions very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Um, I, uh, sort of, this is, this is blending away from pure insurance question now. So, uh, uh, give me some artistic licenses then if you would be so kind, but this sort of, <laughs> I, I, I'm a bit of a film nerd, so I, I, I love to see this vision of future, um, but I was like, this isn't necessarily new, this is like Blade Runner came out in the 80s, and, uh, <laughs> and then this is this feels more, uh, it feels almost like a Blade Runner vision, but but what I thought was interesting, but that does feel tangible now, you know, you're not putting things here that aren't realistic, you know, flying drone delivery, you know, food services that use, uh, utilise uh, unused you know tops of buildings for example and, and you know like charging in the streets it, it, it's not um but it's interesting how far that is from the aces landscape we've worked at but i wanted to ask you about you know do you think tech is catching up with culture in the way that we envisage the future and suppose broadly how important do you think art and culture are to innovation um yeah, I, I, I'm pleased you referenced that it's realistic. That was one of the objectives, because if it's not realistic, if it's too sci-fi, then you're just not going to buy it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we took the kind of real buildings, real world, real streets, and let's just assume like that is now autonomous and like fully mobility is enabled through technology. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased it's landed well. In terms of... Um, art um and uh, culture it's a good uh, good one i think they do have to like, imagine if their vehicles looked very boring and boxy and uh you know that would be that would be boring that would be not attractive to jump in those vehicles and and experience that and i think um at the same time it needs to be very practical so in order to they always say like building great simple stuff takes time and lots of thought so i think a lot of creativity needs to go into building these vehicles and uh, like street layouts and street structures so i think it has a key role to play um and uh, you can make some pretty very pretty and practical vehicles um mm. if you are using inspiration from other industries so yeah, even, even to the point, like one of the scenarios we planned there was how does a lunch market look like, right? So you've got robots coming, driving for your lunch, and then they go. How do you structure them? How they enter? Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how, how easy it is to purchase stuff on, on back of them? Um, all of that, right? And you could put a lot of great thought into building some exceptional experiences. Mm. It's interesting how the uh, if you look at electric vehicles that are out today, I was thinking that and there's a few i live in brighton and and mm. you know uh, i suppose there's elements that are quite wealthy so there's been there's you know there's lots of first movers as well but it's interesting how uh different most electric vehicles look to most other cars and and it says something about the first mover you know like most most people are they're not the first first movers but they're fairly early innovators on that scale that are buying these cars so um it's interesting that they're so different and i, and I think it ties into the people that want these uh, probably do think slightly differently and have engaged with it. So the idea that they would just look like any other car, which is, I think, where they started uh, very quickly, it's been like the most successful ones we see now probably do look a bit different. So, um, yeah, 
I think like there, when you look at the traditional OEMs, they've first solved the problem of like, take petrol angel, turn it into a electric one. Uh, so the vehicle hasn't necessarily changed in terms of the user experience in the vehicle. Whereas the ones who build it from scratch end to end, there's materially has changed the vehicle look and feel. Even in our future, you'll see that we've got standing pods and um, like two per person vehicles and one person vehicle and so forth. Why? Well, and they are thin, very thin in terms of structures as well, because you're not going to crash into anyone, which mm. means that you're not going to be needing that kind of metal armor around you. Mm. So um, therefore, you can design a whole different set of vehicles that are moving in close proximity, but they're not going to crash into each other. So um, I think the whole world opens up in terms of what does a great experience in a vehicle will look like in the future. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I, I I think about the you know we think the future of work's been talked about a lot. Pandemics led to kind of remote working in a way that we haven't seen before. Um, you tally those things as well. Like people will be traveling slightly less. You would imagine or would like to think so. Um, I can't wait for future where I'm getting in a car and it drives me into London. And especially if I'm on my own, I'm quite antisocial really when I travel. So. I'm, <laughs> If you give me a solo vehicle, I'm in it. Um, as long yeah. as I, you know, fire up the my, things. Uh, yeah. The things that have not yet sold. So maybe that's for listeners as well. If they've got any ideas, is I think in this world when you've got fully autonomous vehicles, you the vehicles won't park anywhere. So the consoles don't get any parking income, right? And then uh, uh, also um, uh, parking fines. Right. They don't you they won't park, so you can't find anyone. So there's a big chunk of income that's being lost in this new structure. So how do you solve for that income? And then secondly, I think what we've seen in the US as well with um, the autonomous vehicle out there, when they see an autonomous vehicle coming, the pedestrians, they just cross the street. They don't care. They know that that vehicle is going to stop. Now, imagine it's fully autonomous. Everyone's going to cross roads everywhere. Now, if that happens, then the, the traffic doesn't flow. So mm -hmm. that's a problem. So how do you then um, set expectations with pedestrians where and how they should cross the streets? Will they, will they start getting fines? Is that where you get your parking fines back if they cross at the wrong places, wrong times, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. so there's, a, there's, a, there's a few like practical problems to solve, even from a point of view like you know, consoles income or some other things when mm -hmm. the world evolves, but uh, uh some exciting problems to solve. That's that's a really good point about uh, the crossing of the road for pedestrians, and it's um I've just been in I mentioned this year I've just been in New York for um ITI for a week, and every time I'm in America, in my because I'm you know from just outside of London, I'm so used to crossing the road wherever I like. Um, I've always thought jaywalking was the most ridiculous thing, but basically what you're telling me now is autonomous vehicles are going to make jaywalking a very logical thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but then well, if if you do it like i'm sure we've been at those zebra crossings where people just keep coming and coming and coming and coming you can't can't try right so yeah. that doesn't work in that world then then everyone is just sitting in the vehicles and commute is like two times longer so i think there's, there's a we are solving some problems we are creating the others but that's normal that's with innovation right so you have to solve these problems as well hmm. we can't talk about electric vehicles i don't think without talking about the fossil fuel industry uh, uh, and i'm conscious i'm bringing this in quite 
late this is a, this is a very big problem to solve but i did you know do you think as an industry insurance should be doing more to encourage people to move away from fossil fuels because you know arguably if it can't be insured it won't it would stop it would it would you know would not be used so um there's been a few people that are trying to solve this problem but you know do, do you think we're seeing enough movements to as an industry for us to be doing proactively trying to help fossil fuels stop yeah um it, i think as on my early example of being the tide riser it's um we have a role to play for sure mm-hmm. right and uh if i think there's a couple of years ago when electric cars were i don't know 20 percent more expensive in terms of insurance policies because they were a lot more expensive to repair and everything else then um, um that doesn't necessarily help but at the same time insurance is a is a insurance mortgages lending they're very much on the same category whereby it's all about charging a customer 100 and making sure that you pay out uh, no more than 100 right so if, if you pay out more than 100 then it's uh, kind of a, the bigger you get the worse it gets so it's important that you like objectively look at the numbers and risk ensure the risk where you can the way I think about how to what the insurance companies should do is focus on the claims handling, focus on the uh, supply chain networks, and push hard on that side, making sure that the carriages know how to fix electric vehicles, making sure the parts are there on time. Uh, all of those elements. That's how you uh, giving replacement vehicles out, giving electric vehicles instead of like petrol vehicles, for example. Um, to the customers all of those things i think insurance companies can do because that will then overall reduce the cost of the repairs uh cost of claims which then reduces premiums which then encourages more customers to buy electric vehicles i think one of the obstacles is like you you run a quote for for your um, tesla or and also equivalent uh, petrol car in terms of price and the insurance comes out cheaper on petrol so that should not be the case i think if it does in practice then it's the role of insurance companies work with their claims and uh, supply networks to make sure that at least the coolant is achieved in the near term and uh, even significant kind of reductions in 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 the long term mm. and that's how you how that's how we can help mm. incentivizing through action um Yes. Yeah. The, the, uh, just on claims quickly, um, I'm surprised, personally, been surprised that we haven't seen more investments in in claims technology, um, because you know we, we talk quite often about putting the customer first, and to a large extent, customers first. You know, experience with an insurance company, or certainly the, how they judge insurance companies when they have a claim. Um, are you surprised we haven't seen more pure investments in, in insure tech from a claims perspective? Or is it because it's being built internally by companies that are digital first, like like Zigo? Would you would you say? Yeah, their um, claims is an interesting part from a technology point of view. From from a, on a surface level, it's really about kind of workflow management. And there's so many workflow tools out there that you can implement and customize. But that's not really what makes successful claims. The key part is the fraud detection the like uh, predictiveness of claims the accuracy of uh, claims information itself uh, in first place about the claim so 
claims is the place where all of the kind of up the stack technologies come together. If let's say, if you were to get GPS location of the customer, that's a great validation of like claim accuracy, fraud, multiple other things. So I think a lot of the technology sits above, uh, but it all is being used in a claim or needs to be used in a claim. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of a claim element is the repair networks. Mm -hmm. Um, So which is all about kind of relationships, contracts, SLAs, all that. And that's all about kind of operational uh, process management. So, and then in order to um, develop a software and sell it, it would need to be sold to large insurance companies. So mm-hmm. you really have maybe like, I don't know, 500 customers in your customer target list across the world, mm-hmm. let's say. And implementation periods, I spoke to one large insurer, they're implementing a new claims workflow management tool. It's a two and a half year project. So from a VC point of view, investing money, your sales cycles are super long. And, um, you know, the customer target, your target address mark is relatively small. So I think that's the, one of the main reasons. Mm. And then the other thing is like insurance companies do want to own claims. This is the, the last part that they're willing to kind of a, uh, um, have others uh, kind of a, have a take on. So, um, so therefore, there's a lot more internal focus. Um, so, mm-hmm. but I, um, I do see that there's a pockets of uh, software that's being developed to help in this workflow that can be uh, linked up, you know, certain fraud detection, certain image recognition, certain, um, you know, uh, workflow management tools and so forth. So, Mm. And, and it's um it's interesting the way that you position the business as a technology business that does insurance and i think you then look at all of these different tools that can be bought as a, as a separate entities and i was just thinking as you were saying it then then it becomes the job of the insurer to you know choose the best ones of those that are going to deliver the best customer experience and and then the skill is almost in sewing them together so the experience is kind of unique and and and, and world class Yes, I think that is the, um, you might notice I'm using a lot of analogies. So I think the key thing is um, the insurance company tech stack is like a, a fake Christmas tree, whereby you buy the kind of a main uh, kind of a branch, and then you've got dozens and dozens of branches coming off that tree, and that's how it looks great the insurance company has to own and build the main kind of a a branch Um, and then hook into different type of software where it's applicable or relevant to that uh, main core branch. Now, at the moment, when you look at a lot of insurance companies, either A, the branch is like super old and irrelevant, so hooking anything onto there, it's almost impossible. And secondly, uh, in a lot of cases, they don't actually own it in first place. So insurance uh, software houses are really owning them, controlling them, and they've got no incentive to kind of uh, improve. Uh, the more complex and uh, structured it is, the better for them. So therefore, those two, um, from our point of view, it's all like we are kind of a driving all of that platform and building that platform. And then depending on kind of a, a requirement to build versus uh, buying it we make the decisions there mm, mm. brilliant well sent i'm really conscious of your time um, i know we've got a hard stop um but before i i let you go uh are you up for a few 
more fun quick fire questions yes let's do it <laughs> well we're talking about futures so i just wanted to talk about sci-fi so are you star trek or are you star wars um i think i'm star trek because um the the element of reality there you know like like we did in uh, future 2040 sci-fi is too 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 hard of a push for me yeah and so if we took a negative view of the sci-fi future, um, do you want to live in a Terminator world or do you want to live in a Matrix world? <laughs> uh, Terminator world, yes. I agree. <laughs> Matrix world looks harrowing. Um, Terminator, yes. feels like there's a chance there. Um, yes. And then bring it more, more realistic, um, are you team Blue Origin or team SpaceX? Um, ooh, that's a hard one. I do love what uh, jeff bezos has built with amazon but between the two it's spacex yeah i agree um well i will i will i will leave it there um i really <laughs> appreciate you taking the time um the most contentious question of the day will be star trek versus star wars no doubt um <laughs> <laughs> probably i'm gonna get many messages about it afterwards <laughs> yeah i know that's that's that that's the sad truth we've talked about a lot of good stuff and we'll probably get more stick for those but yeah, thank you so much for being um, for coming on and being a guest, and and thank you to the business for for thinking about twenty forty. I th I think it's really impressive that you put forward a vision that people can engage with and 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 challenge and see how you think about it. Because I think I I think it's hugely important for every industry, but particularly insurance. I think they've been very guilty of acting on as now and reacting. And I think you know being proactive is. You know, when we see the sort of growing risks, um, it's so important that we do it. And, and we're starting to see that happen now. And it's where the most exciting innovation is happening. So, yeah, thank you once again for being a great guest on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great fun and um, look forward to the future ones. Brilliant. Thank you very much. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.